Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Providence Journal's College Basketball Podcast. This is Bill Koch, sports writer for the Journal in our downtown studios in Providence. Uh, it is a Wednesday morning as we record this. Uh, we are deep in the conference tournament season. I'm joined by my co-conspirator from WPRI 12 and Fox Providence, Maury Hirsch-Gordon. Maury, how you living? Living well, Bill. Living well. Uh, the warm, the weather has gotten a little warmer since I was last on, Yeah, which is good. We're about 15, 20 degrees warmer. Uh, since the last time I was on griping about the 25 degree temperatures, but today's <laughs> going right. to be up in the 50s, and then I think what Thursday, Friday is going to be in the 60s. So uh, I know I was out on the driving range yesterday morning, had to get out there, hit some balls before the Bryant game, and uh, just soak it in. And, uh, this time of year, we get sucked in, we watch games inside, but you know, in the morning, the afternoon, or nighttime, try to try to get out for an hour or two and take a walk and and enjoy the air because oh. Best time of year, spring and summer. And what a difference from last March. Obviously, we, we were just starting to get into what has become a year-long struggle with COVID-19. Um, you know, there were points by this time last year where we were starting to get a little skeptical about whether or not even the NIT would be played. Uh, we could never have imagined what it would have turned into canceling the NCAA tournament, canceling co- uh, conference tournaments. Um, thankfully, we are at a point where it looks like we are going to see all of those things this year. Um, you know, Maury, I, I need to start off this edition of the podcast with an apology, actually. Um, you know, and this stems back to something that Nick Coit and I were talking about in the last edition. Uh, we were having a discussion about Greg McDermott and his situation at Creighton. Um, you know, he used some objectionable language in his locker room after a loss against Xavier. Um, you know, and Coit and I sort of wanted to open a dialogue uh, about race, about um, you know some of the divisions in America, some of the struggles that that we are facing, uh, some of the movements for social justice and racial equality. Um, and during the the course of that discussion, uh, I used the term sexual preference instead of sexual orientation. Um, you know, preference obviously implies that you have a choice. Um, orientation is the more correct term um you know it it is meant to convey that you are gay um you know that you are not uh, it is not a choice it is not something that can be cured it is who you are um you know so i i got an email from a listener um you know who alerted me to that who who educated me on that uh it is very much appreciated um you know to receive something like that uh because it was ignorance on my part. Uh, I did not know that I was using an incorrect term, but that's not an excuse. I should know better. I should make the effort to know better before you have some sort of nuanced conversation like that. Um, you know, and so I am thankful that uh, I was educated in that way. Not something that's going to happen again. Um, you know, and people could say, well, it's just, you know, words. It's a, well, words matter. It's how we make our living. Um, you know, so I felt it's important to, to start off with that and, and to hold myself accountable uh, before we get into less serious conversations about college basketball and the NCAA tournament, conference tournaments, and, and whatever else. Um, you know, so thank you very much to, to that listener who, who sent that in. Um, you know, apologies again for, uh, you know, my error there. Um, let's get back to why we're here. College hoops, our local teams. You and I were both in Smithfield on Tuesday night for a championship game. We saw a ticket to the NCAA tournament punched. Unfortunately for folks in Rhode Island, it was not Bryant punching its ticket. It was Mount St. Mary's, a 73-68 win over the Bulldogs in the Northeast Conference title game. Uh, Bryant was in search of their first NCAA tournament uh, in men's history in Division I. Uh, this was their first championship game of any kind, conference championship game of any kind, since the mid-90s. Uh, Bryant was in the old Northeast 10, which was a really strong Division II basketball conference. Um, this was really their their first chance to step up to the top level and, and have a chance to get into March. Uh, and Mount St. Mary's, for me, um, you know, played the exact game that they needed to play. They controlled the pace. They were dominant on the glass. Uh, Bryant had a tough shooting night from three. Uh, a lot of things lined up here to work against the Bulldogs, work in favor of the Mountaineers, and that's how we ended up at the result we did. 
these teams hadn't met during the regular season. And I think had they met, Bryant would have had a better feel and an understanding for their length and their athleticism, uh, a little bit of their depth, even though you know they only play seven guys. But but the couple guys off the bench, you know, brought a physicality as well um, for Mountain St. Mary's. And yeah, you, I mean, uh, you said it. Mount St. Mary's came in and, and they played the game they needed to. They slowed the pace down. Um, they crashed the offensive glass hard and were successful there while also making sure they had other guys down the court so Bryant couldn't get out and run. Uh, they really kind of stalled the Bulldogs. You know the Bulldogs can play in the half court. They've won games like that before. Mm. They've won games in the mud. They've won games in the 50s and the 60s. This one was, was, in, the higher seven, it was in the higher 60s, low 70s. But then, you know, you look at a couple of the star players for Bryant that needed to come through, whether that's a Chris Childs or whether that's a uh, Michael Green III, two guys who missed Saturday's semifinal game. And was there rust? We don't know if they were the ones who had positives within the program, uh, how that played a role. Chris Childs and Michael Green, you throw in Nathaniel Stokes, who, who's a, a piece off the bench as well. Those three combined three for 20. Um and 33 points from Charles Pride was awesome. Eight of 12 from deep, and, and Peter Kiss gives you a double double. But but Bryant's been more balanced than than just two scores all year. If you're used to seeing two scores, that's the team in Providence. That's the team in Kingston. Right. Jeremy Shepard, Fats Russell, David Duke, Nate Watson. With Bryant, I think it was they have four players average double figures. Yeah. Um, and a lot of guys get opportunities to shoot the ball, make plays. Hall Elijahs. Uh, was held to just nine nine point seven rebounds. So when you look at it from a thirty thousand foot perspective, disappointing, knowing that Bryant had more talent, has more talent, um, but in a championship game, in a winner take all one game, you play, you hadn't been used to that style all season long. You come in and you get beat, and they kind of got thrown back on their heels. And then a game against a team like Mount St. Mary's. And, you know, we talked about this before. You're down four, it's eight. You're down eight, it feels like 16. You're down 10, you're down 11, like they were. I mean, credit them. They came all the way back at the end and made it a one-point game and had a couple chances to take the lead, a couple shots go in and out, a couple calls don't go the, don't go their way. Uh, but normally they're making a little, uh, some more shots throughout the game so that they're not in that situation. You would have been very surprised if I had told you before this game that Mount St. Mary's was going to outscore Brian on the fast break. Uh, because Brian is the team that you look at and you say they play with pace and they have guards who can get out front and they're going to pressure the ball and turn some people over and maybe get some runouts. Uh, that was not the case, and, and it was mainly because not only did Mount St. Mary's take good care of the ball, they only had seven turnovers, but they dominated the, uh, the glass, 46-34. Uh, the first half, there were 10 offensive rebounds combined between the two teams. Mount St. Mary's got nine of them. Um, you know, and that just sort of set the tone for the rest of the night. Uh, you know, the two teams shot about the same thing. You know, neither one was very good from the field. Uh, Mount St. Mary's took uh, 20 more free throws than, than Bryant, and I think that reflects just how physical they were, um, you know, how tough they were in the paint. Uh, the fact that Bryant was fouling late, obviously, because they were down. Um, you know, but I think you hit on it, Maury, the, the fact that Bryant has these COVID-19 positives. They play without Michael Green, Chris Childs, and Nathaniel Stokes over the weekend. They play really what I thought was an A-plus against Sacred Heart, uh, one of their best games of the season in terms of execution in the half court. Um, And the rust in those three guys was obvious right from the start. Uh, Michael Green goes 2 for 12, 0 for 7 from 3. That's not the player he was all season. Uh, Aside from Charles Pride, they're 0 for 13 from three. This is a top 20 three-point shooting team in the nation. Um, you know, So you consider that that major part of their offense was sort of neutralized by Mount St. Mary's uh, with their perimeter defense. Uh, they were not going to beat Mount St. Mary's inside. You're looking at physical mismatches like Nana Apoku, who is the defensive player of the year in the NEC. Uh, he has 18 points, seven rebounds, five block shots. He's chosen as the MVP of the Northeast Conference Tournament. Malik Jefferson had 10 points and 15 boards. He's the son of Tory Jefferson, who played on some of those URI teams in the late 1990s. Uh, so folks around here w- would have recognized him. 
time. And then Damian Chong Kui, who, who is a first team all NEC pick, um, 21 points, eight rebounds for the little guy, which you know you wouldn't have realized unless you had looked at the box score. Uh, one of those fire starter type players at a low major program that you know America is going to watch in a 116 game and think, well, how is this kid even on the floor? You know, with <laughs> with all these big guys, uh, you know, and his jumper looks a little broken, and you know he does things a little awkwardly, but. It works, and, and he's a great leader for his team. You could see that they were following him, following his example. Uh, they were very comfortable with, with him having the ball in his hands. Um, he played all 40 minutes in, in this game and, and was super, uh, especially in the second half. So, you know, Mount St. Mary's beating the top two teams in the league, both on the road. They had upset Wagner to get here on Saturday. Um, you know, they were full value for the win. Their third NCAA tournament since 2014. Their first under Dan Engelstad. The previous two came under Jamie on Christian, who is now the head coach of George Washington. Uh, for Bryant, obviously, this would have been a huge breakthrough for them. Um, you transition to Division One for the 2008-09 season. This is your first time in an NEC championship game. Um, you're favored going in. You, you felt like you'd played so well in the semifinals that you could just extend that momentum uh, and ride it all the way to Indianapolis. And unfortunately for the Bulldogs, Maury, that just wasn't the case. No, it wasn't the case. Uh, great effort, though, from, from Charles Pride. Really bailed them out throughout the first half and second half. Big time threes when, when deficits got to two or three possessions to keep them afloat. A big one at the end of the first half to keep them within five. Um, we were just talking about how, how certain certain deficits can feel double or triple the amount against a team like Mount St. Mary's, but he really uh, picked a great time to have a career night. 33 points, 12 of 22 from the floor, chipped in with seven rebounds. Bryant didn't turn the ball over either. They only turned the ball over six times all game. And when you're Jared Grosso, you have to ride with Michael Green III. You have to ride uh, you know, with Chris Childs. Those are guys that have combined to score 31 points a game this year. But Bryant isn't deep, wasn't deep enough, isn't deep enough to say, okay, well, if it's not Green's night, if it's not Childs' night, I don't have anybody else to turn to. Nathaniel Stokes, unfortunately, isn't that type of player, and he's not a guard. And, and Erickson Bands, for as great as he was in the semifinal game, just a different level of athlete that Mount St. Mary's has. Championship game, nationally televised, how does that play with a freshman's head? So it uh, doesn't, doesn't surprise me that, that you ride with the guys that got you there, for sure. Um, but Bryant, when, when you're struggling like that, they didn't really have a place to turn to. Um, which is unfortunate. A guy like Hall Elijahs, who's been one of the more, is one of the more athletic big men in the NEC, has been dominant at times, uh, had four blocks, chipped in seven boards, but you really didn't feel his presence much last night, Bill, and I think that's because of the, the front line that Mount St. Mary's had that really just kind of neutralized him. I mean, three of six from the floor, I think he just had the one basket after the big jam, I think that was his second bucket of the game. So I believe he only had one bucket, you know, for the last, who knows, 25, 30 minutes of the game. Um, never was in foul trouble, so that was good. He was on the court for you, but you just never felt his presence. Um, and then a guy like Peter Kiss, who gives you 12 and 12, he had to work for every point yeah. on both ends. Uh, you know, uh, defending on the other end, um, Mezzi, Oforum, I mean, he was giving up two to three inches. He was giving up 25, 30 pounds, working his tail off down on the other end. And then on offense, he's got to go up against the same guy. So that, that guy's in his shorts, right. Uh, right up in his face. To the ref's credit, which I like, they let them play Agreed. a lot last night. Yes. Um, so that takes a wear on you as well after, you, he, after Kiss had to play a lot of minutes Saturday in the win. And I, we had kind of mentioned that they won by 30, but they didn't have – Guys weren't able to take a rest, right. a breather, because they only had seven guys available. So all of those factors kind of combine in, in, into what was unfortunately a disappointing loss. It, it is disappointing. Uh, if you're Bryant, like we said, they have more talent than the Mount. Uh, but in a one-game scenario, uh, these, are, these are things that can happen. You get behind, you have a little bit of an off-shooting night, and a couple guys that are rusty, a couple guys haven't played and, and maybe don't have their – their freshest legs and, and game legs under them, and, and that's what happens. You, you, you come up a couple points short, but that's not to say that this team didn't have a, a phenomenal season. They had Syracuse on the ropes game one way back in November. 
Uh, they had Jim Beheim saying that they, that Syracuse didn't want to, you know, didn't want to play them after the fact. You know, obviously didn't know how good Bryant was going to be. And I think that mark uh, at the beginning of the season, you're like, okay, what can Bryant become? Well, yes, they can become a team that was atop the NEC, a team that that eventually went 15 and six. Um, and a team that was pretty much in every game, a team that won its second ever game on the road uh, against an Atlantic 10 team in UMass, uh, a team that went on the road beat beat New Hampshire in the in the non-conference. So this was a squad that, and for the latter for the most for most of the season, they were in the in the top 100 in the net. And and you can have your gripes and complaints and talk about uh, you know the inefficiencies of the net, but this was still a team that that was well ahead of the pack in the NEC all year long. Um, and as we kind of transition the conversation to kind of moving forward and, and what the season means, this is a team that could, could bring back five guys. Uh, they're starting five and then and guys off the bench as well, so they could bring back more than five. Um, Jared Grasso's name will be rumored out there for plenty of jobs. We get that. That's part of the business. Uh, coaches, players get poached at all levels. But if Jared Grasso wants to run things back, there's no reason why Bryant can't be back in this spot next year. There are two different discussions to have as you go into the offseason with Bryant. The first is the on-court discussion. The fact that all eight players who they put on the floor on Tuesday night are eligible to return. Um, you know The guys who are, who are capable of graduating and transferring without penalty, uh, Hall Elijahs and, and Peter Kiss, have both said that they will return for next season um you know so just considering what they were able to do this year going 15 and 6 uh it was their best record through 21 games as a program in their history um team that finished you know would have won a conference championship we both think if if they had been able to play all the games um you know a team that obviously has a certain level of skill a certain level of talent that will put them right back at the top of the nec next season uh ideally you add a little more depth maybe you get Melo eggleston back he only played in one game this year the opener against syracuse but he was a very highly regarded recruit coming out of high school who initially committed to wake forest so that's an extra set of hands who could really help you next season if they're able to get him on the floor um Generally, though, I, I think the more important discussions to be had around programs like Brian are the off-court discuss- discussions going into the off-season. Uh, the fact that there will be folks reaching out to the likes of Michael Green and Charles Pride and Peter Kiss and Hall Elijahs and saying, "Hey, come play for us." You know, we're certainly going to go to the NCAA tournament. You you could help us. Uh, you know, there are certainly going to be folks reaching out to Jared Grasso, who who is through his third year at Bryant took over a team that was 3 and 28 the year before he was hired they're 15 and 6 now they're playing in a conference championship game uh, it's obvious that he can recruit and build a roster um, you know he's 40 years old and and someone who is clearly on the rise in the coaching profession uh, the the job that you hear him most commonly linked to at this point is Fordham uh, Jared is a New York guy he was the interim head coach at Fordham as a 29 year old uh, he spent eight years at Iona in the New York City area with Tim Clouse as his associate head coach before he came to Bryant um, and so at this point more you you need to make real life decisions if, if Fordham becomes a, a realistic choice for Jared, and, and he's going to be mentioned with that job. You're also going to hear Shaheen Holloway uh, in connection with that job, the, the former Seton Hall guard. He's the head coach at St. Peter's now. Uh, you're going to hear Pat Chambers there, the former Penn State coach who, who ran into some off-court trouble with the Nittany Lions, uh, You know, used some objectionable language with his players. Is that something that he's able to overcome uh, and rehabilitate his coaching future? You're going to hear Steve Lavin there, too, as well. Uh, he's been on a desk with Fox sports for quite a while but you remember that Steve Lavin's a New York guy he's coached at UCLA he's coached at St. John's he's been in the NCAA tournament Um, you know that's certainly somebody who could raise Fordham's profile Uh, if they were to get serious and and, you know make a, a real offer to Jared you know decide that he's the guy and let's say they come in with you know something like six years for six million um, you know, and I use the uh, the Duquesne contract uh, for Keith Dambrot as a as a comp. Uh, Dambrot was at Akron for a long time. Was it Akron? 
Exactly, believe right? so. Yep. Um, got a seven-year offer for seven million, and and you keep in mind that Keith Dambert was a high school coach for a long time. He coached LeBron James at, at St. Vincent, St. Mary's, uh, before he got into the college scene. Um, so hadn't necessarily made a ton of money in his career. I'm, I'm sure he was comfortable at Akron, but seven years for seven million is life-changing money. It's family-changing money. Uh, you know, if Fordham comes to Jared and says, "We're going to offer you six years for six million. Jared has a wife, three young kids. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what he makes at Bryant, but I'm sure it is modest by college coaching salary standards. Um, you know, and, and so you think to yourself, do I want to establish my financial future now? Even though Fordham is a really difficult job and there's a small percentage chance that I succeed there, uh, that it is clearly a bottom half of the A-10 job uh, and has been since they came into the league. Um, the other side of that calculus, though, and this is part of what makes people like Jared Grasso and, and other coaches successful, is they all believe that they can do it. No matter where they go, no matter what the circumstances are, they're always going to bet on themselves. Uh, I am not making a direct comparison when I say this, but someone like Bill Parcells, who won Super Bowls with the Giants, when he came to the Patriots, the Patriots were a laughingstock. They were a total clown show, had never won, played in the worst stadium in the NFL, and in two years he's in the Super Bowl. Bill Parcells believed that he could do that. That is one of the things that it, it's a double-edged sword for coaches, that ego, that self-belief. It works for you on the climb. It can work against you at times when you opt to take on a huge challenge, which is what Fordham would be. Um, you know, In terms of Bryant, if I was Bryant, I would go to Jared. I would offer him a contract extension for two reasons. First, it's deserved. He should make more money. If they have more to offer, uh, they should give it to him because next year I think they're going to be really good again. Yep. The second reason is to put in some buyout language in there um, because you know that your coach is going to be hot property on the open market. He's already being mentioned with Fordham. If he stays another year, Bryant wins like we expect him to. Uh, they're right back here in the NEC championship game like we might expect them to be if the roster is the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, it stands to reason that the offers could be better. And if you do have some sort of buyout language in that contract, if it's two or $300,000, let's say, 400000 whatever you can negotiate, mm-hmm. that gives you a head start on your next staff, on improving the program further, whether it's you know more amenities, uh, you know you redo the locker room again, let's say you work on the Chase Center in some way, um, gives you a bit of a financial cushion. So there are going to be serious college basketball discussions uh, surrounding Bryant, whether it's on the court and the players they can retain or off the court and on the business side in the next few weeks. Yeah, I mean, there was a reason why Jared Grasso has been on many lists of top 40 coaches under 40. You know, this was when he took the Bryant job. Uh, it's no shock to anybody who knows college basketball, who knows the success of the, the, that Iona's had, or just a, is just a, a fan of the game in, in the Northeast, in the New England area. I mean, Jared Grasso's name has been synonymous with success. Um and you knew in short order he was going to be able to turn things around at Bryant. Um, he can pull guy under-recruited guys from, from New York, tell them to, hey, come up here, Bryant, beautiful campus, great education, uh, and let's go win some ball games in a league that he was very familiar with. So um, these are all good things. Like if you're a Bryant fan and, oh, my God, why are we already talking? We're, we're a day after the championship game. Why are we already talking about potentially Jared Grosso leaving? But that, that means your program is in a good spot. Right. Jared Grosso bringing your program to this spot only elevates the job. Then even if he leaves the next guy that comes in, well, now Brian's name is, is on the map a little bit more. Maybe other guys say, oh, look what, look what Grosso did. Maybe I can come and do the same thing. So the job itself just uh, continues to get better. You get probably more applicants. Uh, and you get maybe more qualified uh, people as well for the job. So um, all these things are they're pros and cons and results from good seasons. Um, and there's always going to be positives and negatives that, that come out of every situation. And, and these are just some of them. And I think it's important that we lay this out so that fan bases and, and college basketball fans in Rhode Island specifically uh, can understand um, that, that this is what happens on a smaller scale to what happened at Rhode Island when Danny Hurley left just a few right. short years ago. So right. uh, it's the same exact thing. Um, but 
you, you hope from our perspective um, we like to cover winning teams. I mean, we show up win, win, lose, or draw, but it's it's always more fun to cover winning teams. That for our sake, if this Bryant team can run it back, the out of conference schedule next year will be loaded. It'll be interesting. It'll be if they bring back the same roster with Grasso. I mean, he was talking about going to LSU this year on a whim. He went to Syracuse. He's hasn't been shy. He's gone to Iowa. He's gone to Rutgers. He's gone to Maryland. They've played well. They've had chances to win at certain places. So, I mean, you could see an out of conference schedule that's loaded. They, I, you know, don't don't put it past them to go to like a North Carolina to go to like a Gonzaga. I mean, he's going to want to do everything to get his program prepared, especially with a full out of conference slate. Hopefully next season, and hopefully no pauses, no COVID next year. So hopefully you're playing a full conference slate as well. So um, these are all good conversations that you're having about the program, and uh, hopefully they're back next year because I think I think this team can can get back to the spot. Yeah, if you can retain the coach and retain the players, you. You are entering a new era in Bryant basketball where you have expectations now. Yep. Um, you know where you are a winner, uh, and that was something that, that Tim O'Shea helped set up. Uh, the previous coach, um, you know, he got them to an NEC semifinal. Um, you know, they were winning games in the mid 2010s uh, while Tim was there. They were having a certain level of success, um, and it's nice to see them sort of taking this next step uh, to the precipice of, of potentially being a championship program. Uh, that, in a lot of ways, is a much more difficult step to take. Um, it's a much more painful one when you do lose, uh, and, and we did see that on Tuesday night. Uh, I, I agree with you. I hope Jared comes back. If, if I was his agent, I would advise him to do so. Um, <laughs> because I think if, if you're able to do this two years in a row and you're able to make an NCAA tournament, uh, your offers after next offseason will be much better. Um, you know, Whether it's from better programs, more money, whatever it may be. Uh, and, and you will have a chance to further advance your career as you've done to this point. Um, you know, we will go to the New York City area for our next topic, and that is the Big East Tournament, uh, which will start today, I think, 3 o'clock tip in the first game. Uh, we'll have to wait a little bit uh, until later this evening for Providence to get going at 9 p.m. on Fox Sports 1. The Friars will face DePaul. Uh, they had a very favorable uh, last couple days in terms of the standings and, and how it shuffled out. Providence ended up the sixth seed. Uh, they played DePaul, who was last in the league. I, I get the feeling we could say that just about every year. Um, the Blue Demons were 4-13 and overall, 2-13 and in the Big East. Uh, Providence coming off a 54-52 win over Villanova on Saturday. Uh, as I wrote it, Maury, I, I think it's strange to describe a win over a top 10 team is a struggle, but that's exactly what this was, especially in the second half. Uh, Providence only scored 16 points in the last 20 minutes uh, and was still able to get it over the line on a David Duke tip-in with 2.8 seconds left. Uh, yeah, a good win for the Friars. They, they've had a habit of winning their regular season finale. I think that's six in a row now. Um, and they also have a habit of playing well at Madison Square Garden in the Big East Tournament. Since realignment, Providence is 8-5 and five at that event. They obviously won the first one in, uh, in 2014, beating Creighton in the finals. Um, you know, the Friars have a, a certain level of, of confidence, I think, and, and I asked Ed Cooley about that in our last media availability with him. Uh, I think they, they take a really good mindset to New York every year. It, it's a stage that they embrace. Uh, it feels like games that they are comfortable playing. Um, you know, and you would imagine that, that they feel good about getting on the floor against DePaul, a team that they should beat, uh, maybe getting 40 minutes into their legs and getting a little comfortable, uh, you know, and then moving on Thursday night to a potential matchup with UConn. Three of your most important players, David Duke, A.J. Reeves, Nate Watson, were all on the team last year that were on the bus, had been riding a six-game winning streak, a borderline top 25 program, a team that was a lock in the NCAA tournament. How often are they thinking about last year's um, you know, news that, that they didn't even get a chance to play in the Big East tournament and then, and then eventually the NCAA tournament? So um, has that been on their mind? Has that been a motivating factor this year? Okay, you go and beat a, a Villanova team who's who's a solid team even without Colin Gillespie on the court. Now it's like, hey, we're back in this same spot. We're coming off of a win at home. Can we get some of that momentum back? Can we can we play well in a place that that we've played well for the better part of six or seven years? Um, and 
you hope Providence can can take care of DePaul uh, so that they're one of the final eight teams in the Big East. Uh, they should be able to take care of them. I think they opened up as like a seven-point favorite. Uh, it would be a big disappointment if they do not beat DePaul. Yes. Uh, but we'll we'll go under we'll, – we'll proceed with this conversation um, as if Providence does beat DePaul, and then you're going to go play a UConn team, and I think we can agree that that, that is the toughest draw – in the second round, um, they are the trendy pick to win the tournament. They are uh, the tr- as we sit here. They are the trendy pick. Uh, they have a lot of pieces. They have depth. Uh, they have a coach uh, in Danny Hurley who's been there before, who's won conference tournaments, who's won an NCAA tournament game uh, games, I should say. So you know, yeah, if you're the eight or the nine, it's nice that Providence finished sixth. Had Xavier beat Marquette. Providence would have been, I think, seven or eight. Correct. Um, which means, you know, you play a Creighton team who's lost two of three, who, how does the Greg McDermott situation affect their on-court play? You playing a, you're playing, or if you're an eight seed, you're playing a Villanova team who doesn't have Colin Gillespie, and they said Justin Moore is doubtful, right. Jay Wright said a couple days ago. So you're, so you're playing the team who you just beat, and we're up by 20 points a week prior. So... Providence does have the toughest draw. Ed Cooley knows that. He talked a lot about UConn uh, and his availability on Sunday afternoon after the All-Big East teams came out. Um, so there's no doubt about that. However, sometimes it's good if you're, if you're, in, a, if you're in the Big East, you're going to have to face the best teams anyway. Maybe you face them on their first game and you catch them a little bit overconfident. You catch them a little, a little off after you yourself having you know, had won a game before, uh, which would be the DePaul game. So uh, you got to take care of business against DePaul. Um, Providence has to play well. They need their one and twos two to play well, and then they need their their other pieces to play well. Uh, AJ Reeves and, and Nate Horkler, uh, Noah Horkler, I should say. So um, yeah, I mean, hopefully Providence can win, and then and then you're into a, a quarterfinal game with UConn, and you have to win four and four, which is really tough. Uh, hopefully they can make it easy on themselves, maybe get a little rest. Uh, against DePaul late, but but that DePaul team doesn't doesn't go down easily. No, Providence swept them this year. Two very different games. The first one was a, a double overtime game at home, ninety five to ninety. Very high scoring. Not much defense there. The second one on the road, fifty seven forty seven. I think it was the best. Providence defensive performance this year in terms of points per possession allowed. Ed Cooley did not coach in that game. He had food poisoning. That was a win for Jeff Battle, uh, who who did a nice job stepping in in Chicago. Uh, Providence's most recent win, Maury, I think you hit on it. David Duke and Nate Watson each had 20. The third man in was Noah Horkler in this one, 10 points, 13 rebounds. Uh, He's been a demon on the glass uh, recently, the last seven or eight games since he stepped in as a starter. Um, You know, Providence, it was just the first half. I don't know if they could have looked better, uh, you know, in terms of just offensively, the looks they were getting. They started off 9 of 10 from the field. Then they missed six straight shots. They called a timeout. Ed Cooley ran an offensive set that got Nate Watson the ball. They sort of reestablished their rhythm, and they finished the half 7 for 10. You're up 17 at the break. Villanova's without Colin Gillespie, their first game without him since he suffered that torn MCL in his left knee. Uh, His college career is is likely over. Uh, The Wildcats looked rudderless, and and that doesn't happen very often under Jay Wright. This is generally a a well-oiled machine, especially at the offensive end. Uh, You know, they're normally so efficient, shoot the ball so well. Um, They had no answers for, for Providence for maybe the first 20 minutes of this game. This changed in the first minute of the second half. Villanova scores on their first two offensive possessions. Ed Cooley takes a timeout. The Wildcats get it down to six, you know, maybe in the first four or five minutes of the half. And you're sitting there and you're watching the game and you're thinking, okay, Villanova has a scent of this now. They have a whiff. You know, they, they have some life. If Providence had just come out in the second half and played a good eight to ten minutes, Villanova goes away. You're up 20 with 10 minutes left, 25 with 10 minutes left. If it goes the other way, you push it out a little more. They can read the scoreboard. They know who's sitting on the sidelines. Justin Moore hurts his left ankle late in the first half. He's out sitting next to Colin Gillespie. There are your two primary ball handlers. If you're Jermaine Samuels or Cole Swider, yes, you are tough guys. You are character guys. But you're looking on the bench thinking, jeez, we are really stuck here. Can, can we just you know get out of here? get to New York, try to heal up, you know, maybe we can reset a little bit. 
That's not what happened. Providence gave them a glimmer, and Villanova's culture is just so strong. They've won so much, um, you know, that they're able to make a comeback like that. Samuels, a native of Franklin, Mass, nearby, he had 21 points in this game, was really good in the second half, 7 for 11 from the field. Um, you know, he actually made a layup with about two and a half minutes left that put Villanova in front for the first time since early in the first half. But Providence was able to get it done, um, you know, able to, to feel a little bit good about themselves going to the Big East tournament. Um, you know, you mentioned it more. UConn is, is looming there. Ed Cooley said that uh, he feels like UConn is in a place that Providence was in last year, winning six in a row, going down to Manhattan. Um, and Cooley said that he felt like Providence could have beaten the Globetrotters the, the way that they were playing. You remember that last night at the dunk, beating DePaul by 38 points in that game, uh, just absolutely crushing them, outclassing them for a full 40 minutes. Providence was a clear NCAA tournament team at that point and, and a team that looked like could do some damage in March. Uh, at this point, they will have to win the Big East tournament to reach March Madness uh, for the sixth time in eight years. I, I think we both agree on that. I, I think UConn is going to be a difficult obstacle for them in the quarterfinals. Uh, the Huskies are 10-2 and when James Booknight is in the lineup. You could just look at the two games Providence played against UConn recently. Um, you know, look good at home in beating them, defended well. UConn looks short of options in the backcourt without Booknight. The rematch at Campbell Pavilion, UConn was a completely different team. Yeah, I mean, if we want to get into a little bit of X's and O's and, and the matchup, I think a big thing uh, that Providence did well, and it, it didn't happen often uh, in their game at UConn with James Booknight on the floor, is posting up David Duke down low. I mean, he has a clear couple inches on James Booknight. He has the clear weight advantage. Uh, and then when you post up your guard down low, similar to what Villanova has done in the past with Jalen Brunson and what they do in the present uh, with Colin Gillespie, when you have the, the the guard down low, he can make a move to the basket, get fouled, get to the line, maybe make the make maybe make the basket as well, or he can also become the facilitator from just a different angle on the court. You you put Noah Horkler out there who's who's shooting over forty percent from three. AJ Reeves is a shooter. Uh, Alan Breed can make shots. You have Greg Gant who can make shots. I mean, Providence has guys. You wouldn't label as as a bunch of shooters around the key, uh, but they have guys capable of making shots. So I think that's a that's an avenue that that Providence, in my opinion, should explore and 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 should try to uh, exploit the Huskies uh, in that way. Um, but it, it's tough. You, you got to get guys in foul trouble. I think the key for UConn going forward is their front court has to if their front court plays the way they did the last two games of the season with Sonogo and Whaley being really good they're not going to get many off nights with their guards right RJ Cole Tyrese Martin uh Jalen Gaffney and James Booknight one might not have a good game but it's rare that all four aren't going to have a good game collectively uh, you know at the same time so um I think I think they're a really tough task and, and they're also really deep I mean to bring a guy like Josh Carlton off the bench he might not be flashy offensively but he gets the job done I mean he can he can give you eight points and six rebounds in a flash he did it against Providence at UConn um and and it's tough they can go 10 deep and and, and Providence can Providence can go nine or ten deep, but you're not really confident in that ninth or tenth option right now. It's really better off if you were kind of rounded out at, at eight. Um, so whether that's Providence having to make a, a ton of shots, having to make a lot of threes to keep them afloat, uh, playing the best their best game of the season, playing well on the defensive end, it's going to be a lot to ask. There are ways to, to hang in the game. This is a Providence team that won't get blown out. Uh, none of our teams in the area have have really gotten uh, bl- blown out at, at all this year. So this is a team that will keep it close they'll keep it a couple possession game um but is that your lead going into the final five minutes of the game or are you trying to play catch up and and it'll be tough um but hopefully they can get to that point you cannot overlook DePaul let's uh just want to make sure we stress that point no this looks a lot like Dan's first NCAA team at URI and and I'm not making a talent for talent comparison I'm making a season arc comparison uh the Huskies had a bit of a blip Midway through, they lost four out of five. They're clearly struggling without Booknight. Um, you know, the last game in that stretch was the defeat 
at Providence. Since then, they've won six or seven. Um, and as you mentioned, their pieces have, have come together, um, and they are very gifted pieces at that. Uh, you know, Book Knight being back just gives them so much more depth in the backcourt. Uh, the front court has active athletic guys, long guys, whether it's Whaley, Carlton, Sonogo, um, you know, guys who can really battle in the paint. Uh, we haven't even scratched the surface, I don't think, with Andre Jackson, who, no. who is a ridiculous athlete uh, and somebody who could be a breakout player in the Big East next year. That would be a formidable challenge for Providence. Uh, but as you mentioned, you need to get by DePaul first. Uh, that's 9 o'clock Wednesday night on Fox Sports 1. Uh, if the Friars are fortunate enough to advance, they would play again Thursday night, same time, 9 o'clock against the Huskies on Fox Sports 1. Uh, Dan Hurley's former school, the University of Rhode Island, had a really good day Tuesday. Um not only from a basketball perspective, but from an athletic department perspective. Uh, you know, there were pieces of news coming out of Kingston that, that made it a really good day for Thor Bjorn uh, and the folks there. Um, you know, let's start with the headline, which was a major gift uh, towards a basketball practice facility uh, from Stefan Soloviev, uh, who is the son of Sheldon Solo, the late uh, Manhattan real estate developer. Uh, a $3 million gift to the Rams, uh, which will get them within shouting distance uh, of a practice facility. The the target number is $8 million there. URI is just north of $7 million at this point. This has been a years-long pursuit for them. Uh, it's been something that they've targeted for a while. Uh, to see a project like that coming into vision now, um, something that they are close to the goal line on, uh, just a major, major uh, development for their men's and women's basketball programs. Um, so let's start there, Maury, just in terms of, you know, practice facilities, amenities in general, the, the landscape of college basketball and what it's going to be like over the next four or five years as we adjust to the one-time transfer, as we get into name, image, and likeness. Um, you know, the sport itself, the men's side, the women's side, is going to look completely different as we sit here in 2025, 26, let's say. This keeps URI on track with, with a bunch of programs in the conference and, and with a lot of programs uh, similar to their stature across, across the country. This does not – this prevents you from getting left in the dust. Um, you have to have these types of upgrades uh, in order to attract players, in order to, to keep players at your program. Uh, we saw uh, Jacob Toppin and Tyrese Martin leave for, for bigger – more blue blood programs with amenities such as a, a beautiful new practice facility. Um, so this this allows URI um, to get to get on a different stage, uh, a different level than than they had been previously. Um, and I think that'll help recruiting. It will help player retention, um, and and it's something that that was vital, something that's needed if you want to su- sustain the success that Dan Hurley brought you. If you're going to be a fringe top twenty five team, if you're going to be a, a team that competes for a top three or four spot in the A ten, which normally has you around the bubble or in the NCAA tournament field, mm-hmm. you need to have practice facilities like this. You need to uh, continue to to have more money to put into your programs. Um, and and a step like this is is just huge for the program. It's huge for a guy like Thor Bjorn, uh, who works his tail off for those programs, and um, it'll help the women's team as well as as they've had a lot of success this season. Bringing in a new, in a new coach and Tammy Reese, who's here for her second season. Yep. Um, and, and winning A-10 Coach of the Year. So uh, both programs have had their fair share of success in recent years, uh, more so on the men's recently than the women's, but the women's is, is trending in the right direction as well right now. So uh, this is something that's huge. It'll be a, it's, it's a big day for Rhode Island. The next question is then, hey, A, how quickly can they get to the $8 million, and B, when can they put a shovel in the ground? That's right. Um, you know, and there's there's still some hurdles to clear here. Uh, you know, obviously the URI Board of Trustees has to approve this. You don't make a university-wide announcement like this and then have it not be approved. Uh, so that's just going to be a formality for, for anyone who might be concerned about that. Uh, Stefan Soloviev was a, a URI undergraduate uh, in the 1990s, dropped out. 
Um, you know, he's now the chairman of Crossroads Agriculture, the Colorado Pacific Railroad, and uh, the Solo Building Corporation, which uh, he inherited as part of his father's estate. Um, Sheldon Solo was, you know, someone who, who lived the American dream. Uh, Brooklyn guy, son of a bricklayer, dropped out of New York University, um, turned into a major property developer in Manhattan in the 60s, in the 70s. Um, you know, his projects were apartment buildings on the Upper East Side and in Midtown Manhattan, some of the most valuable real estate in the world. Uh, you know, and the profile that, that he was able to build um, is north of $4 billion in, in terms of his worth. Uh, he passed that along to his son. His son decided uh, that he would like to make a, a bit of an impact at his former school. Um, you know, and it's it's really important, I think, and, and I think you hit on it there, um, the fact that the Atlantic 10 isn't a re- it's not a resources neutral type league. You know, when we talk about the Northeast Conference and, and Bryant, you know, everyone plays in a high school gym, everyone's on a bus, you're all sort of fighting the same things. No one has that much more than, than everybody else. Um, you, you look at a place like the SEC, uh, you know, with the football cash there and the TV deals and whatever else, everyone has practice facilities. Everyone is chartering. Uh, you know, everyone can pay the coach four or five million dollars a year. So in that way, the SEC is somewhat resources neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone can cut a blank check for whatever. The Atlantic Ten, there is a very clear separation between some programs who spend and some who don't spend as much. Um, and and the folks who do spend the money are the ones who are at the top of the standings, whether it's VCU, Dayton, St. Louis, um, you know, Richmond opened a new practice facility this fall. Uh, It hasn't worked out at UMass yet, but they opened the Champion Center a few years ago, which was a combination of basketball and hockey. Their hockey program has had big success Mm -hmm. uh, as part of the Champion Center. Um, You know, it's certainly an offshoot of that. Uh, You know, and so I I look at the sport as a whole, and and I, you know, I, I look at, what folks are able to recruit and retain. I think that resources like practice facilities, charters, whatever else, I think that used to dictate your ceiling in recruiting. And now with the one-time transfer coming in and player movement being what we think it's going to be, I think it's going to dictate your survival. Um, you know, your, your chance to be viable in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, I look at what happened to George Washington this week, losing three players, including, including Jamison Battle, who was an all-rookie selection last year, averaged 17 points and five rebounds this year. Uh, he's going to leave after his sophomore year. You may as well wave the white flag if you're George Washington. Um, you're losing him, Chase Parr, and Sloan Seymour. Um, you're basically signing up to be in the bottom half of the league again next year. It's Jamie and Christian's third year. Um, you could look and you could say, we're playing better basketball. We might have a better record than we did my first year. Uh, our player development it is what it is. But you are nowhere close to being a conference contender or a conference champion. Um, you know, you're sort of on that hamster wheel just going over and over and over. And you know, George Washington has one of the smallest budgets in the league. Uh, you know, their facilities that have, have needed an upgrade for a long time. Uh, you know, they play in the Smith Center. No one goes to the games. They don't have a practice facility. They're nowhere close to somebody like VCU, Dayton, St. Louis. They, they can't threaten them. Um, you know, and this was a program that 15 years ago was one of the dominant programs. Hobbs, Mensa, Bonsu. That's it. You know, Carl Hobbs, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and Mike Jarvis had great runs there as head coaches. Um, you know, and, and at this point, GW is a complete and total non-factor because they are either unable or unwilling to invest. Um, you know, and I, I just think that that is more and more the reality in college basketball. I, I also think that, you know, in terms of player movement being what it is and, and what we think it's going to be, um, I think the major difference now is you've always had step-down transfers. Guys who try to start off at the big name, the big program, the Power Five, whatever it may be, they're not getting the minutes, the shots, they get over-recruited. They step down to a mid-major, a low-major, and they're playing a lot, um, and they can be big factors. You know, URI has hit on a couple recently. Stan Robinson and, and Karan Iverson were, were big, big factors on those two NCAA teams. I think the difference in the college landscape now is when you are a mid-major, a low-major, and you are fortunate enough to hit on that player who blows up, and I'm thinking about guys like Steph Curry, Dame Lillard, C.J. McCollum, um, you know, guys who ended up in the NBA but who were at 
Davidson, Weber State, Lehigh. At the time, so long as you didn't have a coaching change, um, those guys were going to stay at those programs because they were the stars. Uh, you know, they got all the shots they wanted, developed their games, um, turned themselves from pretty much unregarded recruits, completely discarded recruits, mm-hmm. to guys who could end up being stars. You could add John ja Morant to that yep. as well at Murray State. Yep. The difference now, I think, is if those guys don't go in the draft after their freshman year, sophomore year, after the blow up, they up transfer, they leave. Jameson battles hearing from SEC schools, ACC schools, even if he's a sixth or seventh man in those rotations. What does he know? I'm going to the NCAA tournament. I'm going to play on ESPN every night. I'm going to be on a charter for the rest of my career. He's seeking that sort of thing out, that sort of situation out. If you're a head coach and you can't retain that guy, if you haven't established yourself amenities-wise or success-wise – as a quote-unquote have in your league, I just think that the separation over the next five or ten years is going to be massive. I I look at what's happened with the college football playoff. Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State have pretty much staked out the top three spots, and everyone else is playing for fourth, and no one else can win the national championship. You're looking at places like Michigan, Texas, USC, Notre Dame, great lineage. They spend through the roof. Um, They're able to recruit in decent areas of the country where you have players. They're not even close. And so I think the college basketball landscape being what it is, if you look out five, ten years from now and you have one-time transfers and you have guys leaving and whatever else, it just makes it so much more important to get yourselves established right now. And I think you or I took a major step toward that on Tuesday. Major. And they've gotten those former you know, top players in. Uh, they did that with the Mitchell twins, who both have a lot of upside. They did that with an Antoine Walker, who was at a Georgetown. So they've been able to attract talent to Kingston without a facility like this. Now when you have a facility like this, you're able to get even more. You're able to get more eyeballs on your program. Uh, it's just a really good step in the right direction. I thought you put it, put it really well there and about the future of the game and the future of the sport uh, and the way kids' minds work and, and uh, just being so – they want to be pleased in the moment. You know, they, they, they want uh, as many things as possible. They've been told they're, they're the greatest thing since sliced bread from the time they're five years old. So right. um, things like this um, are, are huge for the program and, and it, sh- it should really help. And you know David Cox and Tammy Reese – they recruit year-round. They're already using this uh, as a way to recruit, I'm sure, today, tomorrow, the next day, and so on and so forth. Um, when you have this, have this plan, um, just hopefully they can raise the, the last eight or $900,000, whatever it is, to get to the $8 million and, and hopefully they can get a shovel in the ground because those things take time to build. Um, sometimes there are delays. It's hard to build structures and buildings like this in New England right. uh, during w- the winter time. So that's that's all secondary and that's all down the line. Um, but hopefully you can get it up in the next couple of years, um, so that the guys you're recruiting now, the, the current freshmen and, and sophomore and juniors, will have an opportunity um, to experience a, pr- a gorgeous practice facility like this and and the, the pictures looked awesome yesterday that were that were on the the Rhode Island athletics website yeah uh, and, and I'm just excited to see it you know whenever whenever it comes it'll, it'll be really good and uh, yeah hopefully hopefully they can get that done done sooner than later uh, beyond the facility Tammy Reese has a lot more to sell today than she did yesterday as well yeah. uh, two-year contract extension uh, for the Atlantic 10 coach of the year. On the women's side, uh, Tammy Reese, well-deserving of the award, uh, 11 conference wins at URI, only their second time they've won double-digit games in the Atlantic 10. Um, she goes from 180000 a year to three hundred, which is uh, the same base salary as David Cox. Um, more importantly, URI protects itself by raising her buyout to 250000 uh, after the first year of the contract. Uh, that's important in case other schools come calling. Uh, it gives you a head start on, on hiring the next coach. That's the same discussion we had with Bryant, which Eric Grasso um, you know, keeps Tammy Reese in Kingston through the 2025-26 season. Um, the roster that she's been able to build finished fourth in the A-10. She had the co-player of the year in Emmanuel Tahan. Uh, that's the first 
Player of the Year honor for a URI woman since 1984, I think. Michelle Washington, uh, who is pretty widely regarded as the best player in program history. Um, MP Fafasi is named to the second team, All-A-10. Uh, Catherine Cairns is named to the All-Rookie team. Uh, URI plays Friday at 2.30 in their Atlantic 10 tournament opener. Uh, you know, Maury, just in terms of the Rams women, um, you know, the fact that this program the 10 years before Tammy Reese in conference play, they were 24 and 126. This has been a serial loser for a long time. Um, they've had two years of double-digit wins in the A-10. They've had 12 years where they've won zero, one, or two games. Wow. Um, so you consider the fact, you look and you say, well, she's 11 and 7 and, and 24 and 23 overall in two years. Is that really that good? Compared to historical... Um, you know, achievements at URI with the women's program. Uh, she's moving mountains at, at this point. Um, she's done a terrific job. And, and what I like most about Tammy is, you know, she's on a Zoom call with us on, uh, on Tuesday, Wednesday? Today's Wednesday, right? Tuesday. And she's just very forthright about the fact that they haven't done anything yet. You finish fourth, you think that's good? I'm not satisfied with that. We're not champions of anything yet. We didn't win the league. We haven't won the conference tournament. We haven't made an NCAA tournament. I love the ambition. I, I love that it's so naked and that she just puts it out there and, and that her standards are so uncompromising. I, I think that you know her language, the, the way that she talks about her program, about her kids, about their goals, uh, it is the language of winning coaches. Um, you know, And you've heard it I don't know how many times from uh, coaches in men's sports, women's sports, basketball, or, or anything else. Um, you know, I, I just think that, that she has a way about her uh, that has breathed new life into this program. Uh, you know, so well done by Thor Bjorn to be proactive and, and to get this done uh, you know, before she's out there in the open market. She's a proven winner. She, she did it at Syracuse. And you talk about you know, the resources in women's basketball, the South Carolinas, the Notre Dames, the Tennessees, the Yukons, those programs are perennially in the Final Four. Well, she helped build a team that got to a national championship game in Syracuse. Their women's basketball history isn't, isn't littered with championships and Sweet 16s and Final Fours. So she took a team you know, from, from Central New York and, and built a program and got them to a championship game. She's a proven winner uh, as an assistant coach, and she comes here and she, and she keeps that up. And in year two, uh, they have the second most wins in the Atlantic 10. Had they played a full season, you know, maybe they finish a, a little higher. So um, it's it's great accomplishment for her personally, individually. A lot of accomplishments for the team. Um, you just ran through them there. So uh, it's a fun team to watch. They play Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock uh, against will either be the winner of the number 5 seed VCU Rams um, or Davidson or St. Bonaventure, right. uh, which who are the 12th and 13th seeds. So uh, they've already beaten VCU, I believe, this year. So uh, they have an opportunity to get to a semifinal. And once you're in a semifinal, you're two wins away from, from an NCAA tournament bid and somewhere that a place that, that Rhode Island women's basketball hasn't been for a long time. So um, great for her as well. Women's program in, in a great direction. And like you said, Thor Bjorn noticing. Uh, obviously, based on on the wins and the, and the success she's had this year, that that she deserves that pay raise. She deserves a contract extension. Um, and Rhode Island is a place that you can build a program. It's not just building a team for a year or two to make a run at a title. Uh, with this practice facility, with increased money, uh, she can carve out uh, a nice little tenure here. Um, and and that's hopefully what what that's the goal from the athletic director's standpoint and, and hopefully the fan base and, and you hope she, she stays around for a little while. Uh, it was it was a great day for Thor. It was a great day for basketball at URI. A great day for athletics uh, as a whole off the court um, and off the field. Uh, we'll see what the Rams do on Friday. Um, their last game against VCU was their regular season finale. 87-68 win. They shot 68.6% in that game. That's difficult to do against air. Never mind real people. Uh, you might struggle in some practices to shoot 70%. Um, it was the first time they'd ever beaten VCU in a game. Uh, you know, so you wonder um, you know, just how much they have left going into the tournament. Uh, you'd certainly like to see some kind of run there uh, you know, and potentially scaring uh, a chance at, at 
a second NCAA tournament in program history. Their, their only one was in 1996. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Uh, they're certainly a lot closer to it, it feels like, than they have been in past seasons. Um, with that, Maury, I would ask you, you got anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think we could talk talk about Gonzaga real quick. I think last night and just Ooh, okay. are you taking Gonzaga, Baylor, or the field in the NCAA tournament coming up, assuming no no injuries and assuming no COVID pauses um, on the Rhode Island Sportsbook app? If you don't have it, download it. Um, for, at least you know for for March Madness, and it's just great to great to look at. Maybe you know you can uh, decide to to throw a little money there if you choose. But I just like it because I like to see kind of the in game lines and how they switch and move and 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 BYU. I don't know how you can play a better game than BYU did last night. Oh my god! Um, and you still lose by double digits <laughs> to Gonzaga. You're up twelve at half. Gonzaga was down like nine or ten points late in the first half, and, and we're at the Bryant game. But I flip on my phone and I go to the app, and Gonzaga was still a four-point favorite. Yeah. And I think money line they were still like minus two hundred. They came into the game minus eleven hundred, and they were still the favorite, down nine, with how well BYU was playing. Because you just know how talented Gonzaga is, and Jalen Suggs. If you haven't watched him, I mean, please, he is appointment television. Uh, you, you have to turn your TV on. Uh, when Gonzaga's in the NCAA tournament because he is a phenom. He's a, a one-and-done, should be a first-team All-American when it's all said and done, uh, potentially National Rookie of the Year. So um, he's phenomenal, and, and he's one of, of many great Gonzaga Bulldogs that they have, uh, have on their team. Uh, phenomenal. And, and this year, you know, there's been talks about ratings down in college basketball across the board and and Duke and North Carolina haven't gotten the the exposure and the viewership that they normally get in recent years and I think part of that is due to the pandemic part of that is due to the blue bloods not being great sure Uh, your Dukes your North Carolinas your Michigan States your traditional teams Kansas has had a solid year but to their standards they're nowhere near where they normally would like to be no um so, and then another big thing is the one and dones, a Jonathan Kaminga um, and Jaylen a Jalen Green. Yep. Green. So, right. those guys that are in the G League now, normally, you know, when Zion played that one year at Duke, it was like, who cares? You just want to watch Zion. It doesn't matter who he plays for, who he plays against. He's on TV. You want to watch him. He's a generational talent. That's right. So, the Blue Bloods haven't been great. Viewership's down. You also don't have some one and dones, but there still are a few. Cade Cunningham, Oklahoma State, Jalen Suggs, Gonzaga. There's plenty of reasons to still watch the sport uh, and, and at the game's best Gonzaga Baylor top one two teams in the country the entire season I don't know if I can remember at least in my lifetime a team coming into the NCAA tournament as heavily favored as Gonzaga uh, the, I think from a ratings perspective having a team that's chasing an undefeated season I, I think that's automatic gold uh, for CBS and, and the family of networks there that, that's going to air the NCAA tournament um, you always want to see, you know, who could be the next team to go undefeated. We've been waiting since the 1970s, since Indiana did it. Um, UNLV came close, uh, lost to Duke in a semifinal. Uh, Kentucky came close, lost to Wisconsin in a semifinal. Um, but to my knowledge, if, if you know, just going off the cuff here, I don't think there's been a team that's been undefeated. Uh, Sorry, Indiana State was undefeated with Larry Bird going into the championship game. They lost to Michigan State. Yep. That was in 1979. Since Indiana went unbeaten in the 70s, I don't think there's been another team to reach the championship game undefeated uh, in the last 40, 45 years. Um, you know, so the intrigue surrounding that will certainly help ratings. Uh, I think if Michigan is able to make a deep run, you're, you're going to see a lot of Fab Five references with Juwan Howard being the head coach there. Um, you know, that was a, a sort of golden era of college basketball where, where you really went from, you know, the sort of four-year senior traditional paths to these upstarts in Michigan, these freshmen. Uh, you know, they're starting five guys. All five of them. They can't possibly win. They have no experience. You know, the college basketball was such an old man's game, and, and still is to an extent. Um, but Chris Weber, Jalen Rose, and, and the crew there, uh, you know, completely changed the calculus in terms of who could play and when they could play. Those guys were fantastic. Uh, didn't win a national championship, but made back to back title games. Um, you know, I, I look at Gonzaga, Maureen, we were talking about this before the podcast. What the heck is in the water in Minnesota? Minnesota. 
You got Jalen Suggs and Paige Beckers, who is the great point guard at UConn, the freshman of the year and player of the year in the Big East this season. Um, they could both be realistic candidates for national player of the year. You're, you're going to see them both on the short list. Uh, Beckers has a lot better chance to win it than, than Suggs would. Uh, there are some stronger candidates, I think, on the men's side. But both freshmen, both point guards, both from suburban Minneapolis, uh, you know, the Twin Cities, uh, both just superstars right away. Um, what the heck is that about? Amazing. It's unbelievable. Amazing. And and you wouldn't think that you might expect that out of New York City, out of Los Angeles, out of Chicago, um, you know, sort of these traditional basketball hotbeds. Yeah. I didn't realize that Minneapolis had that sort of game. Uh, I mean, the U has had, you know, a very nice program for a long time. And, and on the women's side, you've got Lindsey Whalen coaching the Golden Gophers. She's a legend there. Uh, you know, obviously someone who played in the WNBA for a long time, who, who had a long run with the Connecticut Sun, in fact. Um, you know, but to have two generational talents like this coming out of Minneapolis in the same year, I, I think that will be a fascinating storyline uh, if both teams are able to make a run deep into the NCAA tournament, whether it's the Gonzaga men or the UConn women. Um, I just think it's wonderful that we're able to have these discussions right now and have some confidence that those events are going to take place. Yep. Uh, we are in such a different place than we were a year ago with vaccines being rolled out and, and folks um, you know, seeing a path to normalcy we, we are not there yet um but we do have that sort of light that's sort of out there on the horizon and, and it is a really nice feeling uh considering where we were at this time you know, a year ago um maury as always i want to thank you for for coming in on the pod uh we are in the best part of the college basketball year conference tournaments selection sunday only a few short days away uh, watch some games, folks. Get ready for your brackets. Get ready for your pools. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in.